Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of React Roundup. I'm your host today, Dave Sedia, and on the panel, we have Lucas Rias. Hello, everybody. And Thomas Aylott. Hello. And we're joined by our guest today, Dinesh Pandian, where we're going to be hey talking there. about DevTools and progressive SSR and pretty cool stuff. Yeah, Dinesh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me here. I'm super excited to be on the show. Absolutely. Great to have you. This episode is sponsored by Kendo React. Progress is Kendo React is a commercial library of UI and data visualization components for React, designed to build from the ground up for React. In other words, it has zero external dependencies. The library includes more than 60 professionally developed, and trust me, they're great looking components, including powerful data grid with many advanced features such as export to PDF and Excel, plus a vast array of useful components from buttons to dropdowns, a date picker, tree view. They just look great, and it makes your website look great. And they have three really, really polished themes. It augments any existing UI component library as well, so you can use it with other component libraries if you're doing that. You can get a 30-day free trial, which enables you to use the library's complete functionality and access Kendo React's technical support. Now, these guys are legendary. They have a 93% customer satisfaction, and you can get full access for the period of the trial, and your tickets are typically answered by the Kendo React developers themselves. Now, all you have to do to get this trial is to go to kendoreact.com slash reactroundup. That's kendoreact.com slash reactroundup, and reactroundup is all one word, no dashes or underscores. So go check it out right now. So could you tell us a bit about your background and like how you got into development and all that kind of stuff? So I'm, I'm originally from India. Uh, I started my career as a back-end engineer. I was hacking uh, at search engines for, for a few years. Then I moved to front-end. Fortunately, when I moved to front-end, I didn't have to support legacy browsers like IE. I directly started, <laughs> nice. I directly started with Flexbox and all the latest tools. I never had to worry about things that a lot of people worried in the past. So I that feel fortunate about <laughs> I've heard that before. Yeah, so in the past two years, I've been hacking a lot around front-end. I moved out of India and moved to Kuala Lumpur. I worked in a startup there for a year. And recently, I moved to Sydney. I am with uh, Thinkmall right now. So nice. it was like Sydney, Australia, Sydney? Yep, Sydney, Australia. Cool. And so what was the name of the company you're with? Thinkmill? Oh, yeah. Um, so the company name is Thinkmill. Uh, we are a team of uh, JavaScript developers. We heavily work with uh, open source projects, and we are an agency kind. We help other companies build products, and we also focus a lot on open source. We have a couple of open source projects that's been used by millions of users all day. It's really good. So how did you get involved in uh, React? Yeah, so two years back, uh, the first project, uh, I was kind of pushed into React project. When I get started, it, the, the code was, uh, I started with Redux. I started with Redux before I started with React. Huh. So it's huh. a, the first day I, I opened up the code and we had hundreds of files with hundreds of components and hundreds of state flowing in from different directions. Wow, for oh. two or three days, I didn't want to touch the code at all. Yeah, <laughs> that's a rough yeah. welcome. <laughs> it that's, took a while, uh, but yeah, I got used yeah. to it. That's really interesting because I definitely worked on a couple of, of projects that were much more a Redux project than a React project. React was only a detail hmm. because it was only like functional components. There was no like set state. So it could have been handlebars. <laughs> like yeah. right and everything was was handled uh, in redux and i think there was probably like one year span that all the projects that w- were born on that year span were were like similar which was when redux was released and got popular yeah so that's kind that's of the a, dream right like 
put all your logic in Redux and your UI doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah, and, and then it was like the whole, the, the big decisions, like, is it Thunk? Is it Saga? Is it Observables? Yeah, mm. those were fun times. I think that was the case. So we had a strict Redux-only rule. We, are, we were not allowed to use set stated at all. Anything that's yeah. don't put it in Redux, use only functional <laughs> components. It was yeah, fun. that era. Yeah. Yes. Set state considered harmful. I remember the blog posts. I'm trying not to rant against Redux too much, but oh, good grief. Was React your first experience in front end, or did you do some front end stuff before that? I have done some front end stuff. Uh, I mean, I built websites with HTML. I tried to change some CSS and remember feeling bad about it when things didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> And I tried to learn event listeners in JavaScript and figure things didn't work in different browsers before I explored jQuery. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that nothing nothing was mainstream. It was all, you know, part-time. I just wanted to explore things in the evening and I closed the project in the morning. But then full, full-time, I started working with on front-end only two years back. Nice. So how was the transition from like back-end to front-end? Because I feel like that must be kind of a different world. Were you doing like, what, what languages were you working with and stuff originally? <laughs> Yeah, it, it, I think it's a totally different world. Uh, I was working mostly on the Java tier in the backend. I was working on uh, search engines for uh, top apparel brands. It was fun, you know, when you're writing code that runs on the server, it's very different. Coming to the front end, you're writing code that runs on a browser, and the browser is going to be very different for each user. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then you throw mobile in there, and weird <laughs> network issues, and... Oh, yeah, so the way things got really tricky is sometimes you try to optimize for slow devices and that slows down things for fast networks. And sometimes optimize for fast networks, it slows down <laughs> things for slow devices. Yep. To when do you want device. to be miserable, now or later? <laughs> yeah, that was always better than later. This is uh, really, really funny because when you try to define front-end programming in like back-end terms, any back-end developer would say like, that's impossible. Like you say, like, okay, so you're going to write your code. You don't know where it's going to run. There's no Docker. There's no, it's like may run on one environment, may run on another. So your code needs to be resilient to different environments. You don't know how fast the machine is. It's like a long living process with like multiple inputs of events. And you need to react to these events. People are like, are you crazy? Mm -hmm. You can lose network access in the middle of a transaction. Any moment, so it's crazy. Like if you talk, if you if you describe front end programming like in back end terms, it just sounds like an impossible thing to do. That's yeah. very like, true. I think the trickiest part is uh, debugging some things in production. You know, if something happens in production for the back end, it's right with you. You can go and debug it directly. You know, I remember directly logging into the right. production servers and updating JSP files. But when something you have to debug in front end, you don't have the front end. It's executing on the client's machine. Unless you have yeah. good logging systems, you won't even know what's going wrong. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I've seen that in reality is like, sometimes there's just a gap in, in understanding. There, there are these errors that are happening in reality for some important subset of users and there's just no visibility into it. Just like money went away. We don't know what happens. Yeah. <laughs> even if you put Sentry and other, other monitoring tools you start looking at the errors, and the errors are just like completely crazy. You're like, oh, <laughs> that's not possible. Oh, people, are, 
people are running my application inside an iframe and that's generating air. It's, it's crazy. It's like, you think about everything that is happening. It's, it's, you're really, your code is really like in the wild. Yeah. <laughs> Remind me to tell you stories of the, the net front browser someday. Ooh. <laughs> now is not that day. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. So debugging this stuff, like when it's running on client browsers is difficult, but when you're in development mode, you've got, handy tools in the browser, right? Like we have, we have console logs, we have, we have like <laughs> browser dev tools. It's really handy. And like React has its own dev tools. So can you talk a little bit about like React dev tools? I know you've, you've worked with those a bit and written to blog posts and such. I think React dev tools is uh, pretty awesome. Uh, given all tools are great, but hands-on coming, all of us can agree. Uh, console log will be the greatest debugging tool of all time. Yep. No matter the how goes. damn fancy. Greatest <laughs> of all time. <laughs> No matter how fancy the toolset gets, we always go back to simpler things. All right. Given said that, all the latest frameworks, you know, it is more about scaling complexity. If you take a simple uh, to-do app, we don't even need frameworks to create. We have built it right. But over time, when you add more complexity, that is when the true these frameworks shine a lot. You don't have to slow down your development. You don't have to bust your head a lot to figure out what's going on. Frameworks, the code scales easily with frameworks. Same case with DevTools. Once, if, if DevTools help you navigate the unfamiliar territory in code, in other words, you know, if you do have no idea what the code does, DevTools tells you exactly what it does during runtime. And that's why it's pretty great. It saves a lot of time for everyone when we use the DevTools, right? Yeah. Yeah, I feel like the, the DevTools debugger, like I don't use it all that often, but when I, when I need it, it, I definitely need it, right? Like yeah. that's usually like the second phase after console log. Mm-hmm. I find a lot of people have have very little insight in how how to use the the dev tools, even just the browser dev tools, but especially not like the React dev tools themselves. Especially with the the new version four that just came out. What do you think are like the most surprising features that people don't know about? I think uh, the dev tools shines really good in uh, you can benchmark your performance and. Where it really wins is you can find weaklings in your project. By weaklings, I mean there are a lot of things, uh, pitfalls that can slow down your application, right? So usually there are expensive things that slow down your application and cheap things that not, doesn't necessarily slow down your application. If you just play around with dev tools and within minutes, within two minutes, you will know where the weaklings are in application and you would be able to spot it directly right on point and be able to fix it. Yeah, to be honest with you, I think that being good at the dev tools is almost like a superpower. I think this is one of the the super like differentiators in productivity. And the new dev tools for for React, like the fact that you can track who created what, like in terms of the component, right? So th- this kind of thing, like the fact that the dev tools knows about the, the the React tree in itself, and then you can track context and you can track those things. This is it's really powerful when you are working with these super gigantic applications with lots of shared components from your company, right? You're, you have like a bunch of shared components that you did not create at all. And then your application is just like, I don't know, slow. And you're like, oh my God, all right. Yeah, that's huge. That's very true. You know, that's why even I felt uh, when I first started using DevTools, it, it gives you superpowers. That's what I would say. Say, for example, I recently got involved in a project. That project is really huge. And the original team, that uh, original developer that was owned the majority of the project developer is not there anymore. All right. I went in, I wanted to explore the project and I had no clue how the code was flowing in. 
you know you have hundreds uh-huh. of files you have <laughs> the thousands of lines of code real power while building applications is the mental model right if you have just have two components you can easily figure out how the code is flowing but mm-hmm. on an application level you have to build a mental model of how the data flows from top down where things change interactively and and then not forget it <laughs> yeah, yeah that's right if you use devtools it can help you build that mental model pretty easily yeah of the new features i think the one that that, that is the mo- one of the most interesting is it rendered by? Yeah, that's can, huge. That's the, I, I only just learned about that today, uh, actually, from uh, your blog post. Yeah, this is, this is really interesting because you want to know, like, you kind of find the component that you're trying to, to debug and you want to know where, where in the code it is being instantiated. So only by looking at the resulting DOM and the resulting uh, React tree is not enough. So the render by is, is, is one of those tools that can help you with a lot of searching. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, so take these both examples, rendered by and why this render. React is all lifecycle, right? A component can render and things can happen. It's a lot of scenarios. For example, props can change, states can change, hooks can change. Mm-hmm. And a parent component renders a style component to render. The new dev tools in the version 4, they have this uh, new feature called, uh, it is titled as, why did this render? When a component renders in the profile, you can exactly see which prop changed and triggered a render or which state that changed and so huge. This one feature alone saved me hours of development time. You know, previously yeah. in version 3 of dev tools, I used to use 20 different console logs to figure out which changed where. Yeah. yeah, that's super useful. I remember there was like a, a couple of years ago, I found some package called Why Did You Render? And it was like kind of mm-hmm. useful, but it was also way too noisy. Like it just told you, yeah. like it just flooded your console with, with things that changed. And yeah. this, back this in the day, I built some crazy stupid tools using like, I, <laughs> I used Node.js. I, I ported over the Chrome dev tools over to run headlessly in Node.js and speak to the browser over WebSockets. Now that's called, um, what's it called? Uh, Puppeteer. So you can just use Puppeteer now. But we didn't have Puppeteer back in the day. So I had, like, I did all this. And then you can use that to script the actual rendering engine. So I would use that to dynamically add console log breakpoints to every line of the code that I cared about automatedly it slowed everything down but it gave you this this incredibly detailed flow of exactly what line of code fired before which other line of code which was so huge but it was just so much effort to to dig through i think this is the first time i've ever mentioned this tool (laughs) you'd have to dig through all these crazy logs but you could finally do it it was like the first time in history you could actually get this data now it's just like it was just use react dev tools before and you're you're done you're good <laughs> Man, yeah, where, where was that? That's pretty crazy, you know. Given especially debugging in JavaScript, when you have promises without dev tools, it's almost impossible to debug. Yes. Oh, good grief! And then, oh, I like, I like. Don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, async stuff is the worst, right? It's like, oh, what called this thing? Like, oh, well, nothing directly. <laughs> Just, it was queued up a while ago. And then like cross-frame communication, and then there's like stuff happening on the server and on the client. That's yeah. like all part of it. Okay, <laughs> Encapsulation and function-oriented programming <laughs> saves so much headache. 
<laughs> yeah, I think that this is a really strong selling point for uh, React and for uh, any of these like established frameworks or libraries or whatever. The tooling that starts building around it, that's when it starts paying off. Does that make sense? Like, you when you start having those things, like it doesn't matter if you have if you just found a framework that is better. It's just like I'm not a, a big fan of Webpack, right? But you cannot deny that there's a bunch of tooling now to inspect your bundle size. When that those tooling yeah. to inspect your bundle size like started appearing, that was like crazy. It's like, oh my god, why do I have two low dashes in my you know, this kind of thing? It was <laughs> only two, you're doing to great. You. <laughs> those things were invisible to you so this is the this is the inter- this is the interesting part and we talked a lot about the x state library with that david and other people interested in state machines that's the same thing like the, the it, it gives you tooling so you can visualize things this is when some tools start like paying off is that when you have these toolings and i can live with a lot of pain points of, of React because of the DevTools. That right. is very true. As a coding example, I work with both React and React on an everyday basis. Uh, mm-hmm. And React DevTools version 4, it doesn't work with React now. Ooh. So having worked with React DevTools for a while, now if I have to choose between React and React for any project, you know, given no trade-offs are there, I would choose React just for the DevTools. Oh, wow. Didn't think about that. Yeah. So how do the like the dev tools for React compare to like the the dev tools for like Java cuz you did a bunch of Java stuff back in the day. And I know like the tooling story around Java is just insane how how much great tooling there is. Yeah, when I worked with Java I pretty much uh, stuck with the IDEs, IDEs and breakpoints. I think it was pretty straightforward uh on a if you compare between uh, uh, front-end tooling and back-end tooling, I think it's it all comes down to debugger. If you have a decent debugger that can stop where you want it to stop, you have majority of things. And all the other things showing currently what are the variables available for you in the breakpoint, within the closure, outside the closure, those things are good to have. Yeah, I guess the other, the other issue with back-end is like if you've got multiple interconnected systems and... So maybe your code is fine, but like the database is slow and now you've got to go figure out how to like profile your SQL queries or whatever. No, thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not super fun. It's complicated. Yeah. In the backend world, I've, I've been doing a little bit of uh, backend uh, programming lately in a Java service. <laughs> we are using a Datadog here. So every service that we deploy, we have a Datadog agent in the server. So an interesting thing is happening is that I can trace individual requests and then you can see what's happening. Just like a a React profile tree that you can see like which components are rendering which components, I can see like which services are are being accessed in a given, for one given request. So you say like, oh, I'm... Yeah, I'm spending a long time here on this, on this, uh, on my Java microservice, but then I'm most like waiting for, I don't know what you have. You have all the tracing. You can go into tracing to the different services and Datadog creates like a a graph of all your services. You can see like how they are connected. It's pretty amazing. Like it's real time monitoring of your production, your production system. So yeah, there are interesting things happening too. The fact that everything is in our servers, 
makes it helps. kind of yeah <laughs> it's easier yeah yeah but to be honest the the, the most difficult parts of the backend programming I'm, i'm seeing lately is much more like the infrastructure parts than actual code part like yeah. accessing databases transforming requests making response that part is like easy That part is not the problem at all. The the problem is like, how do I put this in the Kubernetes? I don't know what. And the, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's like it became like a crazy configuration, like juggling game. That probably like the most complicated part of doing backend. Yeah, it feels like backend's yeah. getting really complicated. And it seems like even so, if you've got tools like Datadog and you can you can analyze the performance in your own backend, you've still got to send that stuff over the network to the client. So like if that that's sort of like this middle zone that you don't really control. And so if you're on a slow network or if your users are on a slow network, mm-hmm. then your app can end up being slow even if your backend is fast. Yeah. So we've got stuff like server-side rendering. And Dinesh, you, you talked a bit about progressive server-side rendering. And can you talk a little bit about like what is SSR versus PSSR, I guess, and how those work? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's a super interesting topic. Um, so it's It's, it's not a very common practice because there are a lot of challenges around it. But uh, if you explore into it, we can gain a lot of uh, performance gains around uh, if we use progress rendering right. To put it in short terms, right now in the recent framework world, in the front end, we have these two popular concepts, client-side rendering and server-side rendering, right? Essentially, client-side rendering means you render and all the stuff that happens on the browser on the user's client. Server-side rendering is all your rendering generating the HTML happens on the server. So you essentially generate the HTML on the server and send it to the client. Now, the progressive rendering is part of the server-side rendering, but essentially, HTTP is originally designed to be a streaming protocol. All right, what that means yes. is if you watch a video, you don't have to wait for an entire 10-minute video to download in YouTube. You can just start buffering and streaming 10 seconds of videos. All right, you can start playing before the video comes in. So this works based on the concept of streaming. So the same way we can do for rendering server-side stuff. Since HTTP is streaming protocol, HTML can be streamed from the server. So essentially, if you have 200 kilobytes of HTML in the server, it doesn't have to be transferred to the client in one request. We don't have to wait one request to be transferred altogether. We can chunk it into 10 kilobytes and send them as 20 different responses in small chunks. So this comes into play, as especially uh, if you have a huge page, you have five different containers in the page. And if you want to render things on the server, rendering doesn't necessarily mean just HTML. You have to wait for the data to come from the services. So of the five containers, let's say first container takes uh, less than a second and other two containers takes a while to get the data. You don't have to wait on the server for your entire content to be rendered and sent to the client. So once the header is rendered on the server, you can stream it to the client. And once the next important portion of this render again in the server, you can stream it to the client. So essentially, progressive rendering is without having to wait for the whole HTML to render. Even if portion of HTML is rendered, you can chunk it to the client. And browsers are more than capable of rendering the chunk without waiting for the entire HTML to come in. Yeah, because browsers were, were engineered from the beginning to, to work on dial-up connection so everything had to be streaming because it was that was the basis Mm -hmm. of how everything would have to work in order for anything to work and it's fascinating like facebook even you know before react and all this stuff has been doing that kind of you know um chunked flushing to the the client for 
forever. And I think they had a concept called big pipe where they would first send in like the, the frame of the UI as one chunk and then progressively, you know, stream in each different chunk of content that had all of the mm-hmm. all of the, the JavaScript and all of the HTML. They were still doing server-side rendering at the time, but with, you know, just like jQuery-esque, not literally jQuery, but um, scripting on top of that. And now mm-hmm. moving that over to a React world, they've kind of had to go back and reinvent all that stuff. There was recently a talk they gave at the last D8 conference, or v, I forget what it's called, F8, that's it, uh, where they talked about their, the new architecture for Facebook.com, where they're doing that, like actually sending JavaScript inside of the GraphQL response data that the, like the JavaScript that re- is required to like render the content that's sent. There's all kinds of really advanced mm-hmm. techniques that you can get. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. If we talk about like chunks, setting chunks is not, does not get like the whole picture, right? This big pipe thing, it's a technique that it's not that you're sending parts of, of your page as you render them in the server. It's more like you're sending one HTML, uh, like let's say the loader, and the loader is rendered. You are doing whatever you want in the server and generate more HTML, and then you send to, to, to the client, like a small small script that say, okay, now you hide that loader and now you render what I'm sending you right now. So it's essentially like you are, it's not you are completing your, your page chunk by chunk. You're actually also replacing parts of your, of your page according to what's happening in the, yeah. in the, in the server. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of blurs into the, the, the kind of recent concept of uh, micro front ends where you have, like on the server side, microservices or, you know, separate services that talk to each other over a, you know, streamlined API. But getting that to work on the front end with UI, like how do you make that work? You know, there's a bagillion different techniques about it. I'm sure there's going to be yet another one coming out any minute now that's going to replace everything and be <laughs> awesome. <laughs> it's an old problem, but very few people seem to be focused on it. And I'd love to hear, like, what have you discovered and, like, what are you seeing and what advice do you have us? Because you're kind of living in the future there. (laughs) I think uh, all the problems we solved for the web 10 years ago, we are right now in the time where we are resolving all the problems for JavaScript. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds about right. Yeah. So That's kind of the nature of the beast. (laughs) So essentially, if you take... any site that doesn't do server rendering, right? 
So in today's world, we use the framework Stake React, for example. Even if you have 500 KB of initial load, in slow networks, it might take at least five seconds for the 500 KB to load on the client. So you essentially, your client's browsers are sitting dark. There is just a white screen without showing anything. That's horrifying. Yeah. So when you server render, previously without JavaScript, server rendering is essentially you can generate, it's just HTMLs are generated from templates. You don't have to wait for the whole HTML to generate and you can start chunking. But now in the JavaScript world, since everything is run by framework, your framework has to do one complete pass of the HTML from top to bottom. That means you cannot generate and send things back to the client before the whole HTML is generated, whole tree is generated. Recently, to beat this downside, what we've been doing is we've been doing a bit of mix of both server-side rendering and client-side rendering. What that means is take an average page. You have a header and you have a body that has critical content and you have non-critical content on the side. So what people approach, how people approach this problem is they render the header and critical content on the server, send it to the client, and in the client, they again uh, make a API request, fetch and Ajax calls and wrote the non-critical content. But again, we go back to the same problem. When you depend on the client to render things, you have to wait for the API request. You have to wait for the JavaScript load to complete. So this progress of server-side rendering, I think it bridges the gap between client-side rendering and server-side rendering. It, it gets it uses the best of both worlds. In client-side rendering, you don't have to wait for the whole page there. You can just make Ajax request asynchronously. In server-side rendering, you can quickly render and send things to the client. So in progress of server-side rendering, you can quickly render, and without having to wait, you can chunk things to the client. So essentially, you're, sli- you're slicing things on the server, and you're sending it to the client. Mm. Like, that's an awesome concept, but like, how do we make it real, and how do we use it? Are there any like specific things that we can take off the shelf and just like plug in and start to use, or...? So uh, I've been experimenting around this concept with uh, Express servers. So in Express, you have this API called Readable. So Readables are built for streaming things. You can stream anything from an Express server. So if, if you're generating HTML, you can create a Readable API and generate a header and send it to the client. So in any REST endpoint, you, you, you put your stuff in each portion of your page into an Express Readable and you use send to send it back to the client. And Express takes care of uh, streaming it. You don't have to do anything else. You just use the API. Yeah, because I remember if you're like doing that from PHP, you have to do it like a specifically call like flush to the, the browser. But I, I think Express, yeah, you're right. Express just handles all that, the flushing and the all that stuff for you. Yeah, yeah. It seems like where you draw those lines in the HTML becomes really important then, right? That is one of the challenges of uh, progress rendering. So essentially, HTML is hierarchical, right? Uh, let's take an example. In a body, let's say you have 10 divs. Let's name the div 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. With progress rendering, you have to send the chunks as 1, 2. You ha- it has to be in sequence. Right. If, for example, based on your requirement, if div 3 is more important than div 1, you cannot send div 3 ahead of div 1. You have mm-hmm. to send 1, 2, 3, and 4 later. But Unless. CSS grid solves this problem for us. Yeah, nice. Right. So, so you can sort of like assign a place where it's going to appear and you can render things out of order. Yeah. Exactly. Without, without CSS grid, it would have been impossible. So if you use, since we use CSS grid, you have placeholders and you have portions reserved for the element to be there. So once you stream, your browser takes care of putting it in the right spot. 
Another awesome thing that you can do with this is you can stream script tags. So you can actually, uh, this, I just remember this is a technique I toyed around with with a really wacky side project I'll talk about later. You can create JavaScript for the client on the server side, stick it in a script tag, and then stream that as a chunk. So if you wanted to you know, send div 10 first and then send div 1 later and actually set that, you could just have a script tag that says, okay, just move div one above div 10 and you know mm-hmm. the user is none the wiser <laughs> <laughs> but this this css grid is really interesting so you define the what they call grid template areas is that what it is so if you define grid template areas when you start streaming it doesn't matter where the div is inside the grid it will always be in the area that was assigned right that's right that's right that's amazing. CSS Grid is a game changer. It truly yeah, can is. Can we use that yet? Like, what browsers don't support that? Uh, so CSS Grid has two, uh, two levels of specifications, right? Grid uh, specification one and two. So one is supported in all the browsers that are currently uh, supported. It works even in IE11. So CSS Grid specification two doesn't work in IE11, though. Yeah. It was a very successful, like, release. Like they they did a pretty good job in in the interesting thing is that I think it started in IE right, but then they, I think yes then they got yeah. stuck in the first <laughs> in the first version, so that's one of uh-huh. those interesting ones. Yeah, because yeah. I remember playing around with Grid like for IE only years and years and years ago. It's like this is the best thing in the world, but we can't use it anywhere. <laughs> yeah. so forget it. It's really interesting the fact that that you can really define your layout without needing to, to change your HTML is because you still need to do that with Flexbox. Yeah. That's a and game changer. To, enable should, things like that. Yeah. And you can even like dynamically redefine the positioning and order of elements depending on the um, media query. So if you have like somebody that has a constrained browser or, or if they're looking at it in portrait, you can totally just rearrange yeah. the layout with no javascript which is so huge yeah i love when that happens no so, offense to javascript <laughs> <laughs> so about the, the progressive uh, rendering part i had one issue when i was working with seo related uh, pages that needed to be really fast so we ended up working with streaming the html so we, we got like even more fat we we had like we already had maybe a two second page load on average on our measuring thing and it became like one point five, so it was like a twenty five percent increase that, that was really good. But there was an issue that as soon as you start streaming something, your HTTP status code becomes two hundred. So we lost a little bit of monitoring abilities there because so we would send mm. a bunch of HTML and then we start fetching the entity that we were about to render. And oh, if there's a so 404, yeah, if there's a 404, yeah. we would send an error a page to, to, to an error chunk to, to be rendered. Like, unfortunately, we didn't find, but your page is still 200. So we lost a little bit of monitoring. You can't change status code after you start uh, streaming and yeah. we started streaming because of the SEO benefits, but Google penalizes you if you show an error page without an error status code. 
Mm. Yeah, so it was like that that performance boost, is it being good or bad for us? Because we had a bunch of uh, 404s with 200 status code happening. Yeah, that's tricky. So there is a concept called, I think it's transport headers, is that it seems that you can stream HTTP headers too. And then you what? can change. Yeah, it's. I think they're called transport. And then, correct, if, if I'm wrong, people are listening to, to this. Yes. You can send like headers uh, while you're streaming that will change the contents of your previous headers, but not all clients understand it and you can't change all the headers. And HTTP status code was one that the Google bot did not, it was not yeah. able to understand the, the change. So yeah, it, I think it introduces additional challenges there. So you render the critical content, it's all good. Then while you try to render non-critical content, if you get a 500 or 404, there is no way we can uh, we, we can fix that right away. Yeah. So it's been a while I don't work with server-side render. I think I'm a little bit less stressed in my life now. Like those are the type, <laughs> of, those are the type of errors that, it was, that was like, this is the kind of thing that is so specific to the thing that you're doing. And there's not much like documentation anywhere because it's very specific to. And, yeah, yeah. You just got to figure it out. It's, it seems like that and the, and the HTML slicing thing are both kind of maybe general cases of the halting problem. Like you need to kind of tell the future, like how, what's this going to look like <laughs> when it stops running before I do anything. And yeah, that's <laughs> works so well if you're trying to make there. it fast. So speaking about progressive rendering, I've, I've, I've not looked at it, but uh, a lot of people uh, are like sending me links every time I talk about it. It seems that in the Phoenix framework for the, of the language Elixir, they have something called Live View Now that it opens a WebSocket with the server and you don't need client-side frameworks to generate dynamic contents. It's like every user interaction, you send a small request to your browser, the browser server-side render what needs, and then it gets like rendered where it should in your page. Does it make sense? Yeah, so your really cool. is really cool. Yeah, yeah I, I did not play with that, but it seems like maybe it's the next step to, to something it like doesn't... that because it's, yeah, it's, a, it's streaming, but a two-way streaming, right? You could also send a message from the client to the server in the middle of the streaming. It doesn't scale well define. to like Facebook scale. Like I really wanted to push for something like that quite a few years ago, but they they told me, "Do you have any idea what that would do to the data center? Like billions of yeah. open WebSocket connections? No, no. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that seems like that's the that's the trick. There is like you you sort of make a trade off of like." Yeah open like memory and and stuff on your yeah. server you're you shifting more to the server you have to have at least one process per user using your website yeah it depends on is, what you're yeah. what you're doing maybe but elixir yeah. does really well with that elixir can do i think they had some demo a few years ago of like two million concurrent connections on one server or something so okay that's huge that's elixir cool. is built to do lots of because they're they're like really lightweight threads yeah, it's the Erlang thing. I think WhatsApp yeah. oh, for a damn. while. Yeah, WhatsApp for, uses it. Yeah, it's yeah. Erlang, right? They had like one million users before they they had their their second server. Wow. It's uh, it's something <laughs> great. I yeah, think Erlang's for like also. next level. Yeah, yeah, they are Elixir. Yeah, Elixir is built like with the 
it generates like Erlang VM code. So it's the same like runtime as Erlang. So that's why they can do these fancy things. But even with normal server-side rendering, it's always a trade-off of, am I going to do the computation or is the client's computer or phone going to do the computation? So sometimes you're you're in a scale, even you're too small or too large, that your service cannot cope with everything. So that's where like React client-signed rendering is good for you because it's not you don't need to pay for those computation cycles, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, an interesting trade-off. Yeah, I guess the trade-off is that it becomes potentially less accessible to people with slow connections and slower hardware and that kind of thing. Or maybe they just don't like how slow your website is and they leave. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Maybe the solution to dynamic performance is not putting stuff dynamic in your pages. Try to, pages. Try to do way to go. Yeah, the try future. to do as much static things as you can. Because yeah, like, back to 1995. Just like let's do it. <laughs> Time is Roman. Yeah, if you look at it, uh, you know, a handful of years back, uh, we assumed our mobile devices were not really powerful. We thought, hey, a few years down the line, we won't have this problem. Everyone will be having powerful devices. But what happened? We started building even more powerful websites and the problem is still the same. I think we have this tendency to keep pushing the boundaries to make things difficult. It's both good and bad in the same way. Yeah, I think that's that's like the forever state of computers. It's like software yeah. keeps getting slower as the computers get faster. And yeah, this is crazy. I don't know where I read the other day. It's like you buy like the latest gamer laptop. You know those laptops that have like different colors and they are like they they run like the craziest. And you open a web page. And it's dropping frames. <laughs> it's, it's like you're running the craziest games and everything's smooth, but you open somewhat pages that are not even that complex and the animation is dropping frames. I feel like yeah, performance we, is going to become a thing, becoming a thing maybe that, that people teams spend more time on. I mean, with, with games, those things are optimized to within an inch of their life. You know, like they're trying to do all this fancy graphics stuff and websites, I think. For a lot of years, we've just been focused on like getting stuff on the page. And maybe we've got to yeah. spend some more time trying to optimize things now. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, over time recently in the past few years, as a community, as a whole, we have solved this problem of making things easier to build things. You know, with these frameworks and stuff, things are not difficult to build anymore. Now you can see more and more uh, money and investment and energy is being spent on optimizing for performance. Yeah. I think if we give it a few years, we would solve this performance problems as well. But yeah, we definitely have one other problem to solve. Something else is going to come up. Yeah, it's always the yeah. thing. I remember when I was complaining to um, somebody at Facebook about like React Native, some of the, the ways that it was architected back in the day, it's like, this, this is not going to scale well to, you know, scale down to some of the devices of the day. And he said, by the time this is actually shipping, hardware will have gotten so much better that it's not an issue anymore. And just like, that was such an epiphany for me. It was like, literally, I mean, we had the data to know like, you know, devices of this class that, you know, you people buy them here. They, you know, stop using them here. We knew that however many months or years down the road of development cycle of like, hardware is going to shift. We knew, like we talked to the people from Qualcomm. We knew their roadmap. We knew everything. Like, 
it was absolutely certain we can use this architecture technique because it'll be fine by the time it matters. That's that was pretty crazy. Uh-huh. <laughs> really interesting, like next level planning there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't underestimate Jordan. Awesome. He's good. We've been recording Ruby Rogue since 2011, and we've talked to a lot of people who have had a really deep influence not only on the programming community, but also on the Ruby community. And as we've talked to these people, it's become apparent to me that we talk a lot about the things that make them interesting that they've done. We don't really get into how they got into programming or how they came up in their career, how they got to be the person who invented whatever library or or technique that they came on the show to talk about. And so I put together a show where we actually highlight these things. We talk to them about how they got into programming. We talk to them about how they got into Ruby, maybe how they got into Rails. We get a little bit deep into what makes them tick and why they are the way they are. And then we talk about what they're working on. We talk about the things that make them well-known or make them interesting. And a lot of times, it's the stuff that goes beyond the code that really makes these people tick and makes them the kind of people that we want to hear about. And so I put together a show called My Ruby Story. You can find it at myrubystory.com. And it's where I interview these people and just get the stories of these people and how they came into programming. So if you want to hear inspirational stories or get ideas on how you can actually advance your career, then go check it out at myrubystory.com. We should move on to picks maybe. Lucas, do you have any picks this week? All right. So I have two picks uh, this week. Uh, first is a blog post of a co-worker I really like his blog in general. His, uh, his name is Ben Hoyt, and he has been uh, learning Elm on the side. It's interesting because he has a wedding registry website that people actually use with actual users, and he uses this website as his like learning environment. So he was learning Go, and he ported like the, the back end to Go. And he wanted to learn Elm and he ported the, the front end to Elm. So it's, it's really interesting the way that he has a real world application that he does. So it's, there's a lot of knowledge when he writes about these things because it's, it's, he's, he's not creating a prototype or anything. It's something with real users, with a real use case. So this is really interesting. So Ben Hoyt's post on learning Elm. And my second pick is not programming related. I bought a cast iron skillet. Interesting. And Just to go with the knife you got recently. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I have like every every two months I buy something. <laughs> so now it's the the cast iron, and it's really good. It's like I I never cared about like cast iron pans or anything like that. It's really amazing. You can make great steak, great everything. You can put in the oven, the whole thing. You can even bring to, to, to your grill, vegetables, everything. So good. Highly recommend uh, having one. And Lodge, which is the, 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 the most famous one, they're, they're cheap. It's not like a $200 thing that you buy. It, it's very accessible. I guess it's so. just a big chunk of metal, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. You have no idea how, how much people can charge for big chunks of metal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. I guess my computer's just a bunch of silicon, more. right? <laughs> yeah, great. If you're buying like La Creuset, yeah, right. Iron pan, <laughs> Those cast iron pans are not too yeah. fine. <laughs> you got me. So these are my two picks for the day. Cool. How about Thomas? Yeah, so I've got um, one pick for the day. It's kind of, it's not directly programming related. 
So I've got kids, and, I, and I've been reading this issue of the, uh, the uh, 2019 Awake magazine. It's, uh, it's in 211 languages and 64 million issues. But this one's particularly six lessons children need to learn. And just thinking about these, teaching my kids and making sure I'm doing good there, but really thinking about these lessons and applying it to my life of like, you know, the benefits of self-control, how to be humble, how to be resilient. It has so much applicability as an engineer of just like, if I can both training myself and kind of mentoring new engineers that are coming up, just focusing on like, these are the core lessons you need, like as a human being in any walk of life. And how am I doing as far as like resilience? You know, how do I handle, you know, when things inevitably go bad and how can I improve there? You know, I've always been on a, you know, a self-growth kick. And this was just a particularly good one. Awesome. Thanks, Thomas. Dinesh, you got any picks? Oh, yeah. I usually explore a lot of productivity apps. And I am this crazy person that wants to put everything that I want to do in a day in a to-do list. I easily can strike off 10 to 50 items every day. And I use this amazing app called To-Do List. I think it helps me stay on top of my task. And uh, it's pretty amazing if you're... This person who wants to make sure you don't miss anything, don't forget anything, uh, to do this is pretty great for that. I've been using Apple Notes for a while, but recently last month I switched to Bear Notes and the user experience is amazing. It helps you navigate through your stuff pretty easily. Those are my two picks. Oh, Bear is nice. Yeah, I like Bear. Yeah, it's cool. great. So I've just got one this week, kind of related to our talking about Live View. I saw an article, I think last week, <clears throat> called On the Utility of Phoenix Live View, and a guy built a pretty much like a live markdown editor with live view. So as you're typing, you've seen those like side by side things where you have text on the left and markdown on the right or whatever markdown on the left <laughs> rendered on the right. So as you're like typing text and it's like live updating the markdown on the server and setting it back down. And it's, it's pretty impressive. So you can check that out and I'll put in the link to the hacker news comments too, because there were some interesting discussions there. And I think that about wraps up this episode of react roundup. Thanks for, thanks for being here, everyone. We'll talk to you all next week. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.